Hello and welcome to Future Building. I'm Matthew Aitchison and I'm Professor at Monash University and CEO of Building 4.0 CRC. In this podcast, we take a broad look at buildings and building in contemporary society and what's coming down the pipeline in the future. We'll talk with invited guests and experts in the field where we'll cover news and trends along with research and developments in the industry. Future Building is proudly sponsored by Building 4.0 CRC. In this episode, I speak with Javier Glatt, co-founder and CEO of Vancouver-based company CADMakers. CADMakers is by any standard an innovative company in building technology that's diversified over the last seven years from its beginnings as a digital construction and digital engineering company. Javier is an entrepreneur, and as I found out in our interview, somewhat embarrassingly, I should say, he studied business where he met his co-founder, Nicholas Cantin. Of note, Javier was also a professional football player in the Canadian League before moving to start his career in digital innovation and entrepreneurship. We had a wide-ranging discussion about innovation in the building industry, including many trends and observations that Javier has made over the past seven years. I would encourage listeners to explore the show links because Javier points to a lot of very interesting resources that are helpful to companies trying to innovate in the construction industry. Of particular note for me was Javi's take on the lessons that construction technology could learn from bigger tech companies, companies like Tesla, and that is how can the industry make solutions that are fast, continuously improving, and that can be democratized by making them live and available through the browser. I hope you enjoy our interview. I spoke with Javi in February 2021 from his home in Vancouver, British Columbia. Javier. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This is fantastic. Great. Um, so as we heard in the intro, Javier, you're the uh, founder and CEO of CAD Makers, along with Nicholas Cantin. Uh, CAD Makers, for those of you who don't know, is a tech startup in the construction space. Uh, in your own words, how would you describe what CAD Makers is and how you do what you do? It's been an iterative process. We started in early 2014. Just the two of us, bootstrap startup style, get a customer, serve a customer, learn, pivot, try again. The longer story is we thought we were going to be doing 3D printing when we started. <laughs> so we, uh, we were going to try to use our kind of modeling automation capabilities and the, the big movements of, of 2014, if we can all remember. I think it was at the top of the Gartner hype cycle at that year was, was 3D printing. And uh, I think we got uh, caught up in that a little bit. We thought we could make kind of um, physical models to help with construction visualization and different types of things. Very early on, I'm talking extremely early on in the first few weeks, months, we realized that the digital side was was far more valuable than any type of physical 3D print, at least what we were, the problems we were trying to solve. And so very quickly we pivoted and focused on digital construction, which has now kind of evolved into digital construction twins, digital fabrication twins, and then um, development of our own products on the back end of those things. We have two SaaS products that we like to say we created through an insights engine. So we have an engine of insights, which is all these projects we get to work on around the world with all these great customers and people giving us more and more problems that need to be solved. And we can't always solve them in service form. So we started building our own products. So now we have uh, kind of a services arm where we're doing 
digital construction twins, digital fabrication twins for customers and projects all over the world. And then if we can make a dollar, we take the, that dollar and we reinvest 100 cents on that dollar back into R&D and product development. And we're just at the very early stages of bringing those products to market now. And fantastic. I'd like to come back to that business model because I think it is truly fascinating uh, in a second. But zooming back to you uh, personally uh, for the time being, uh, I'm interested in your background. Um, it is a bit of a hobby of uh, mine and people that we interview on the on the podcast is understanding what their background was and how they got to be where they are. Now, I know that you studied engineering. Uh, I'm kind of curious about what, what it was in engineering, if indeed there was anything that prepared you to become an entrepreneur in the building industry. So one small correction, I, my, my co-founder studied engineering. I actually didn't study engineering. I studied business, but I've, I've had, uh, you know, a small, uh, taste of that I've had to learn a lot fast over the last number of years um, but it's a good it's still a good way to ask, ask the question what it did co-founding a company with a very very technical engineer my my partner Nick is quite a brilliant kind of whatever side of the brain the technical side is on he's got a, a lot of that <laughs> and uh, and and you know I'm, maybe I'm on the other side of the brain more and that's why we tend why, why we're good partners I think um, but you know how we got into this is, I wish I had a more romantic story about this, Matthew. I, I, we both, we were in business school together. Uh, we worked a lot together in our last semester. Um, I thought he was just really talented, really, really smart technically. And uh, we just kind of got along. And I think he saw in me uh, a lot of the skills that he maybe, things where he wasn't as good at, I was pretty good at. And what I wasn't as good at, he was pretty good at kind of thing. So we both worked a little bit, um, but we kind of just agreed to start a company and figure out what it would be. We knew we wanted to be in the technology space. Uh, we, we didn't know exactly what to start with. Um, so we just started meeting at evenings and weekends for many months. And I, we both had a background in construction. So we had you know enough knowledge of the problems that we set out to solve. We just didn't really know how we were gonna solve them or what the business model would be. And we got some good mentorship early from a gentleman by the name of Bill Waymark, who's a bit of a mentor to me when I was finishing my football career and starting into business. And he said, hey, like, I, you guys should, don't, don't make it complicated. Start with what you know. You guys know construction. You got good technical background. Um, figure out a business model that's service-based, that you can solve problems for customers and, and then grow from there. So that's how we started. We just started going to local developers and builders uh, trying to solve the problem I had experienced myself in trailers, which was, I'll never forget, I was sitting on a big, actually one of the first mass timber buildings in British Columbia of scale institute. I think it's the first mass timber, institutional mass timber building. I was uh, an intern doing kind of development coordination type work. And there was a really smart superintendent that was in the meeting. And I'll never forget, like I just have so much tremendous amount of respect for him, very talented and, and, and wise and, He's explaining to us, you know, in the meeting why the floating staircase detail that is supposed to go into this building is not constructible. And like, while we, while we were trying to install it, <laughs> and it just kind of hit me like, wait a minute, um, I don't know enough yet to ask this question in the meeting, but you know, and I understand this is pretty basic, but at the end of the day, it's like, uh, why are we finding this out now? There's gotta be a way to, to build things first digitally and then find the problem. 
uh, solve the problem before you get to the site. So it's kind of an aha moment. So we just started going to these developer builders and said, hey, listen, why don't you send us your plans right before you go to build and independent, we will build your project, a digital twin, if you want to call it that. We didn't really know what that was at the time. We just said, we're going to try to build your project on the computer screen, independent of everyone else, the, the consultants, the architect, the construction team, and come back with a list of problems and say, here's, here's where a bunch of issues are going to happen in 6, 12, 18 months from now. And, and how do we, and help you solve those problems if we can. And that's how the business was born. We just got a customer, got a project, uh, you know, got another one and slowly scaled up from there. That's fantastic. And having seen that particular staircase myself, I, I know that it was a feat of construction. So uh, congratulations for getting that one uh, to stand up. Uh, but in a way, even my mistake, uh, if, I, if I can claim uh, perhaps that um, uh, there was a there was an ulterior motive lurking behind my question there, because you answered the question. Many people who are perhaps starting on that entrepreneurial journey uh, think that you have to, or people that are outside the process, I should say, often think that you have to have it all figured out before you even start, uh, because good businesses look good in retrospect. Uh, a lot of people who are outside of that loop of learning and iterating and, and, and doing it all again, perhaps don't understand the lessons that you've just explained in great detail. Is that something you've found with people you work with or, 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 or not? No, I think there is a small percentage of entrepreneurs that, you know, have that prototypical lightning bolt moment. And, you know, just, it just, it just hits them what the idea is and, how they're going to solve that problem and build a product or service to scale. And then they go and do that. I'm not convinced. Uh, it's a, it's the majority of, of entrepreneurs. <laughs> I, I think, I think most, and, and I think that's to be an entrepreneur, you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. So some people, I think just more personality type, if you look at Myers-Briggs and all these types of things, like you're probably going to have certain personality types that are, are okay with that some ambiguity and at least we'll start right my old coach used to say to us it doesn't matter how you start just start <laughs> so you're getting ready for training you know it, you know it doesn't matter how you do it or just just start right and then we definitely did that um there's a whole book i'm sure you're quite aware of the lean startup and startup way which was the second part of that book and we had both read that very closely and we're pretty inspired by that and, you know, one thing looking back is like, you know, you don't have to have it all figured out. What you do need to have, in my opinion, is uh, we had an equation. I thought it was like rate, over rate of learning over time. So how fast can you learn and over, over what period of time? So, so it's, it's like the speed of, of, of learning new things and then how fast you're adopting those things, right? So it's like, it's a double speed equation. And um and, and if you just get, if you just start and you figure out you got to start somewhere of course that's what we, we, we tried all different things including 3d printing but when it started making sense to us and we were like wait a second let's just simplify this thing and go back to what we know which is construction and the problems that are there and we know technology a little bit and then and then I couldn't have ever imagined you know that we would be doing the things we're doing now seven years ago and we, we like we're in our seventh year basically as of this month we're starting our seventh year so I, I just like if someone were to say, hey, you, would you imagine that you were doing these things when you started in our storage locker? 
I would say no, right? You know, it was it was very much <laughs> in your storage locker. I like that. I like that. <laughs> it was very much uh, stereotypical, but we did have a storage locker. Our first employee, Carl, who's still with us, he was the only one that really saw it. He worked his first week in the storage locker with us. We thought we we thought we could scale that up and have two or three people in there, and we realized very quickly that it was not appropriate for any type of, you know, employee type situation. <laughs> Founder, founders are okay, but uh, employees need more. And so we quickly moved out of the storage locker. But yeah, that's my kind of, I don't think, you know, you need to have it all figured out. I love Satya Nadella's thing. He gave it a talk. I think it was like they're all hands last year when he said, we want learn it alls, not know it alls. And that's kind of what you need to be. You just got to have that open sponginess to learn as fast as you can and kind of ask lots of questions and understand your, the problem you're solving from your, from your customer and figure out if it's a big enough problem to go after. Wonderful. Uh, on that uh, and your employees and, uh, and, and your first office, uh, you've grown really fast over the last seven years. Uh, and I know that COVID's uh, affected your business like it has almost every other business on the planet. Um, I'm kind of interested to hear what kind of people are attracted to come and work for CAD makers? Great question. Um, I think it's changed over the years, probably early days, very, very early days, kind of like, you know, we, we worked for six months without hiring anyone. And so I think it was June, 2014, when we hired our first employee, Carl, June 23rd, 2014, if I remember the date correctly. And then a week later, we hired a second. And I think a week after that, we hired our third. And then we stayed at that number for quite some time. And those early, I think a certain type of person that wants to join a three, four, five person startup, right? You know, they, they want to shake up. Well, all of them actually came from, except for one was a student, but the two of the three came from big companies. So I think, you know, they big ones, aerospace, one was, did some aerospace, but also a big like engineering consulting company that does um, kind of like institutional and, and industrial work. So, you know, you probably want to change. You work at a big company, a bit stuffy. Uh, and then you go to this thing, which is a couple of people and, and, and ideas and, and a bunch of blood, sweat and tears. And I think those types of people want to come builders. So I guess they're kind of builders. They want to make something. They want to build something that doesn't exist. And they get heavily inspired and motivated from that. Um, in the middle phase, let's say if we broke down the seven years, we started to get people who followed us online or saw this type of stuff that we were doing clever things with regards to automation and, and solving old problems in new ways. And, and they're just technical folks that just like, Oh, I want to be in, I want to be there. I want to learn from those people. I want to be around that, that environment. Our culture is really great. And then now it's, it's, uh, it's changing again, you know, like a little bit more established, you know, we're not as uh, you would get a lot of really smart technical folks, but they, you know, maybe want to, they've already had some experience in their career and they want to go to the next, you know, take it to their career to the next level. Um, we get a lot of people right out of school that want to go learn and just, just be having an experience where they can get thrown into the deep end <laughs> and, and find a way to survive. Um, so there's, there's that whole camp, but uh, generally we get, you know, we're lucky that we have been done really well. We have lots of really nice, kind, people who are really smart, try really hard, um, and have good attitudes and lots of humility and that kind of stuff. And I'm pretty proud of the team we've built. Yeah, it is a wonderful team. And I've had the pleasure to, to visit a couple of times now. And uh, I can 
I can uh, testify to, to the good vibe uh, that CAD Makers has got. Um, I want to change gear a little bit now and, and, and talk about a, a, a sort of meta level question, I guess, which is that CAD Makers and the work that I've seen, uh, and I know you're, you're doing a, a real range of projects, which we'll, we'll talk a little bit about in a second, but you have a very interesting vantage point in the construction workflow. Um, the digital engineering, digital construction, digital twinning exercises mean that you're literally down to the nuts and bolts level of a building. And, and I think you must see some really interesting things. Um, I'd like to hear what you would see as the big challenges facing the construction industry. And don't feel like you have to give me an exhaustive academic list of 10 or 12 things, but maybe just a couple of the headline things you see facing uh, the industry at the moment. Uh, well, thanks for the opportunity to, to give my opinion on it. Not sure uh, uh, if people agree with me or not, but what I've kind of learned is, you know, construction gets a pretty bad rap in many ways. Um, like meaning, um, you know, all the McKinsey reports, lowest, you know, one of, if not the lowest digitized industry, one of the lowest digitized industries of the major, major industries, slowest growth, uh, one of the slowest growth uh, industries, a lot of these things, right? Um, so I think may, a major challenge the industry faces is it's also one of the most practical industries, right? So you talk about um, true, what is a master builder? What is a trades person? What is it with what is a master trade? You really are an expert, right? You're expert with your, your carpenter, your uh, pipe fitter, plumber, sheet metal. These are experts, right? They, they really learn their trade over a long period of time. And digitization is clearly, at least I'm sure you would argue, and I'm sure I would argue, uh, there's a good way to measure the meaningful impact it can have on our industry. And it and the problem that I see, at least the first few, you know, first five, six years, maybe it's changing slightly now, but I think it's still there. Is we have a lot of technologists that come in, right? And they say, ah, oh, we've got this technology now. You you guys are what kind of Neanderthals are you? You guys don't use technology? What's wrong with you guys? I can't believe, you know, it's almost like a Put, putting down the customer while you're trying to sell them a new tool. And, and you know, ultimately, you know, and, you know, there's been technology looking for problems to solve before. So if I'm a 30 year veteran of a site superintendent, there's been a lot, you know, this is not the first time a new digital technology wave happened. And, you know, there's different levels of impact that they've had in the past. And I think it's probably reasonable for them to be somewhat, uh, you know, what somewhat, um, cautious about how they're going to deploy that so i think you know it, you know and I, I won't list names but there's also business models that pop up and they put a lot of marketing out there and say can you believe our industry how terrible it is we should we, you know this is we're just going to connect everything and don't you worry we're going to you know one you know turnkey we're going to do everything deliver a result to you and you know i think part of the challenge we've had as technologists is does the market want this right uh, there's a great talk by a uh, Stanford professor called Build the Right It. Um, I highly recommend people take a look at this. It was sent to me by someone I have a lot of respect for it and I took a look at this. And, and basically the gist of the, the talk is that almost every product built, uh, that especially technical products, 
the, the founder and the people building it usually think the hardest thing to do is building the product itself. And the data supports that almost every product can get built. There's some that are, you know, if you want to talk about fission or something, it gets complicated at certain levels. But generally, you know, even the most technical products will eventually get built because a lot of smart technical people are building them with like new problems. It's whether the market wants to buy that product or use it. <laughs> That's like 90 plus percent of the reason these products fail. And I think in construction, there's probably some of that, right? So, you know, how do you deploy it? How do you actually make someone's life better and not just show up and say, hey, I got a whiz bang new technology. Let's just find a problem to solve instead of starting the other way and say, what is the problem, right? What is your problem that you have? And working back and saying, well, let's find technology to solve that problem, right? In the most practical, practical possible way and, 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 and kind of pay respect to the, to the industry because it may be slower and may cost you more, but the safest way to build these projects is stick build on site and figure it out. Send me the material on site. I'll cut it on. I'll cut the pipes. I'll measure and I'll put it together. Right. And that's happened for a long time. <laughs> so you start doing prefab, advanced means and methods, these kind of things. Yes, of course, it has a great value proposition if done well. But, you know, like it has to be I think there has to be a lot of more respect given to the industry in general. Yeah, thanks, Javier. That's a that's an interesting and slightly unexpected response from um, you know, a self-confessed technologist. And, and I'm really happy to hear it because I, I, I do too 100% share um, a kind of skepticism uh, about the application of technologies. And, and you alluded to it before with 3D printing and, and sometimes, and I'm sure you've been to those conferences where um, there's a future-oriented panel and somebody says, what's the future? And it's, you know, 3D printing or it's robots making things. And, and I, I really do think that what you said is true. There's a lot of chauvinism uh, around the introduction of technology into construction where it doesn't need to be. And I think what your business model shows and, and the success of CAD makers shows that if you're actually solving a problem, people will come to you because you're creating value. And, and I think that is really a key learning that I've had uh, from your company. So Congratulations on that front again. Um, I'm trying not to reveal too much how much of a fanboy I am of your company. Um, couldn't keep it in check for longer than about 10 minutes. Uh, so, but um, moving that along a little, uh, we probably won't have a chance to discuss all of them, but I, I have had the pleasure of seeing some of the projects and demos uh, of things that you've worked on. Um, as I alluded to before, I, I had the, the fortune to go to... Um, uh, University, University of British Columbia campus and, and look at some of the buildings, including Brock Commons, which was an early project uh, that CADMakers was uh, employed on. Uh, you've demoed to me previously some of the various projects you've done with Tesla. Uh, and I've also seen some of the projects that you've done with Lendlease down here in Australia on Barangaroo, uh, most recently the R1. Um, as I say, we probably don't have time to go through all of those. And indeed, you've got a lot of media on your website uh, for people who are interested to, to check that out. I just wondered if there's one of those three that you might like to spend a few minutes um, getting into in more detail, um, Rock Commons or, or the Tesla engagement or, or perhaps the land lease projects down in Barangaroo. No, thank you. I, I, I mean, thank you for the, all the kind words. It's really, really great to hear that. And um I think I'll talk about Brock Commons just just because for two reasons. It was an pretty early in our company's existence. We 
we admittedly somewhat fell into this whole mass timber movement, cross lamin timber, you know, this whole this whole movement around engineered timber um, with with Brock Commons. We had done a little bit before that, but nothing like that. Um, and then since then, you know, a, a big sizable portion of our business is focused on mass timber and, and the largest, most complicated, most difficult mass timber projects in the world. Uh, and we're proud to be working on some of the biggest and largest and most complicated ones. And uh, there's a project in Singapore, big uh, tallest timber building in Milwaukee. Currently, we're lucky to be working on Portland Airport uh, with a great partner, Swinerton Mass Timber in North America, which is being a great customer for us. And um, so Brock Commons was just this, you know, I got to give a lot of credit to the project manager on the job uh, from the client side. He, he kind of said, someone came to him and said, hey, we're going to build 18-story wood building because <laughs> we want to promote, uh, you know, engineered timber and this advanced technology and the fact that we, where we are in Vancouver, BC, Canada, we're basically in a giant forest. We're in the rainforest, literally. And from a sustainability perspective, and there's other people that can tell this whole story much better than I can, but, you know, there's reasons to build with wood. So we, we were fortunate to be a part of this. Uh, and it, it's amazing how, if you look at that project team, from that project that started in late 2014 and went on till I think whatever 2017 when I got finally finished or 2018 maybe, can't remember. Um, you know the, the team has moved on and, and is is really like becoming leaders in 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 definitely North America when it comes from engineering through supply through uh, installation. The the knowledge and know how that came out of that project is is like really spreading out throughout the world, um, and. So it's just such a unique project to be a part of in terms of the architect, starting with the architect, um, Acton Austri. So uh, Russell Acton, who I got a, just a tremendous amount of respect for, the, the kind of uh, architect of record, designing a building that could get built. How about that one for the first? You know, he said, I remember him saying, our goal here is actually to get the project permitted and built and built safely and all that kind of stuff. Not to, not to you know, uh, do anything else other than that. So from an architectural perspective, so keep it simple, keep it, uh, you know, repeatable, keep it be something that have that could be potentially could be potentially replicated elsewhere in other markets, which I've been in meetings in other entire on the other side of the world. And people reference Brock Commons in terms of like connection details and grid structure and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it's it was really a special project. Um, we, we took a very. Uh, working collaboratively with the, with the team, we took a very strong um, approach around like selective prefabrication. So we said, we asked the team, this is back to my previous question or previous answer. We said to the team, hey, listen, what takes the longest on site? <laughs> it's like, we don't need to, you know, fab, you know, model everything at, you know, 15 millimeters and above for the entire building if it's just going to get thrown in a concrete topping or a con concrete slab that doesn't slow you down. Um, and so we talked to the team and said, okay, well, the sloping pipe is, is one of the largest, late, like all your gravity lines for, for uh, sanitary, for example, that takes you a long time. Your plant room, your, your mechanical room, that takes you a long time. The structure and the facade, that takes you a long time. Um, you know, transfer slab, that takes you a long time. There's a lot of complexity there. So what we did is we said, okay, you don't need to necessarily prefab everything let's find a way to use the digital model to go directly to production for multiple building systems from a single model. So that's what was quite unique about this. So think of say Tesla or someone that's designing a car, they would never 
I mean, they, they work with OEMs and they do have some integration of other federating other people's models, but generally Tesla designs the, the car and designs most of the parts, <laughs> models it all in one model. It's connected, it's got constraint, you know, it's got mechanical connections, it's got, uh, you know, um, uh, references between those parts. It's modeled in context, as they say. And then they go, they design it and they say, go build this, right? Supply chain, here's your part, here's your part, here's your part. Fabricate this. They directly go into your CNC machine and build this part. I've already, you know, it's interesting in construction how we have designers design intent, do intent generally, uh, not in every market, but let's say a lot of the markets that we would be working in. And then you have, depending on the procurement model, you might throw that over the fence, it gets tendered. And then you have subcontractors and those subcontractors have their designers and they often redesign the whole thing. <laughs> so, it's, and, then, and then they go back and forth and fight for the next you know, two years and get the project eventually built. It's a completely different model. It's like having 16, 17 models all together, put together versus one model and then saying, here, you go make this, you go make this, you go make this, you go make that, right? So it's a, a truly integrated model versus federated model concept. And, and so this integrated model is something we continue to push uh, where, where it makes sense. And, and it's, a lot, it's a good way to manage quality. It's a good way to uh, truly build the project digitally at a digital twin level, uh, at least in the construction phase. And, um, and it's been a fantastic project. I, it, it, it's been a, a real great project to be a part of, Rock Commons. And for us, it's opened up a lot of doors on all these other projects, these mass timber projects that are popping up all over the world. Yeah, it really has. And uh, it was uh, foundational for the team that I uh, took on a tour in, in early 2017 as well. Uh, and I'd, I'd also point out that you were very gracious in, uh, in hosting us or members of your team were back in uh, early uh, 2017 as well. And I think it really has gone on um, to become one of the, the major case studies and congratulations on that work again. Um, I forecast before that I'd like to come back to your business model and, and indeed we have spoken quite a bit about that. You know, clearly you're using advanced uh, technology, uh, advanced workflows, you, you draw analogies out to other industries that have similar uh, workflows such as aerospace and automotive that you've you've talked about and obviously you need to tweak those for the construction industry but the overarching idea that I see is that it every building is made or building delivery I should say is made faster and safer and more predictable less wasteful and and ultimately we would hope I think cheaper for the clients and that's probably what keeps them coming back um, for me, you know, those things in themselves are, are highly innovative um, and we could, we could rest the case there, as it were. Uh, but one of the things that, that I found very interesting about your business is the business model itself. And this idea that you do take on these service projects, but you're investing, as you said before, the majority of the, the profits back into building new software products, new approaches, new processes. And then obviously those new products can be, can be used again to automate routine design tasks, for example, making the whole thing run faster and faster and faster uh, and more accurate every time. Uh, a kind of a, uh, analog indeed, in some ways, AI. Uh, have, I, have I got this right? Or could I ask you to pull it apart and tell me if I've got it wrong? Um, I think a lot of credit... So it's, I want to take it back to the beginning of this conversation where you said, kind of, how did you get started? And I mean, I got to tell you, Matthew, when we first started this company, I wish I, I could 
I mean, I'm almost a little bit embarrassed. Like I really didn't understand um, how important it is to build systems, right? Like they're truly systems that 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 scale and that and systems that uh, grab knowledge and share knowledge, make it easy to share knowledge. And and you know, we have funny things. I mean, we've had a couple of people leave us recently, and they said to me on the way out, they said, you know, I spent whatever four years here, and I feel like, you know, just the, just the cat the way we work at cat makers i'm maybe i'm sure there's other companies that do stuff like this but there's a certain style we have that i hope that they go off into the world and and they bring that style with them like don't send me an attachment send me a link it's, don't ever send me it's, don't send me a file this is crazy you know yeah everything that you need inside the company should be attached should be shortcutted from like everyone's desktop on what we call a toolbox you right click and then you just pulls up every single thing that you need to operate in this business so from HR to finance to project management, you know, it's, it's, just, it's a way of doing things. And early days, my my business partner, Nick, who I, I, again, I think should take all the credit. Early, like we had probably no more than say, 13, 14 people. And we paid everything based on services, right? So we, we need to be working on projects. And I'll never forget, he took our first kind of, uh, one of our smartest young young employees and said, "Hey, um, you've done some VBA, you've done some scripting and tool building. Like you're gonna, you know, if you want to keep working on this. I just want you to build tools for us, you know." And I remember thinking, like the finance guy, you know, <laughs> I've come a long way now. But at the time, I was like, "Wait, wait, 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 wait. We're just gonna pay someone an entire full salary sitting there, only just building stuff to help ourselves be more efficient? Like, I'm not sure we're quite there yet. You know, <laughs> I'm not sure we can afford this." And wow, it's like you can't not afford this. If you if you really actually look at it in a different way, you're like this is this is you know of course you got to make sure you don't go out of business. And I was running from bank to bank to make payroll many times, but um, but what a what an important thing. So what so essentially step one for us was, uh, I remember we had a guy start and he said, wait a second, I see all these tools. Like I'm modeling walls, right? I got to do walls in a project, and 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 I'm doing all this work. And he goes. To, can't I just like sketch out a few lines, push a button and it just generates the walls with the studs and the unfold views of cold form steel that goes to a machine that has been nested and optimized. And all these things like you need staggered stud versus wall with a door versus wall with a window and it, with you know all these connection details. It's like, I, I see what we do over here. Can't we just do that? And that's a great question. <laughs> that's a good point. I think we can do that. And then we just started building. So we just go to this guy, Anatoly, and say, hey, build us this wall tool and, and he spent a couple weeks on it or whatever and then every single person in the company uses this over and over again for the next you know so there's a there's a cost to that but if you do it right and you're smart about which tools you build you amortize that cost over the next x projects and x years right because you've been you've paid someone for three four weeks to do nothing but build a tool but then it gets used on every project moving forward by 100 people it's a very good investment you know from a business perspective right as an owner Especially if you can, you know, grab back time and then be able to manage your costs more effectively, maybe still charging the same amount, but making, you know, having lower costs. So that was step one. So let's take a dollar. Hopefully, hopefully we make more than we spend. Doesn't always go that way. But if we make more than we spend, take a dollar. That's and 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 right, reinvest into the business and through innovation on the services side. And then a couple of years ago, we said, wait a second, you know, there's a bunch of insights coming out of these services, we think we need to build another revenue stream that could make that not everything we can solve for our customers, what we can do in service form. Um, we wanna have high value, lower effort 
solutions for our customers. A lot of stuff we do right now is high value, high effort, right? These digital twins are no joke. It's a lot of work. It's very challenging. It's very technical. And, and there's a high value to that, but it's a high effort. <laughs> so, so, you know, what, what can we, how do we build a complementary suite of applications that are high value still, but low effort, right? That can scale more throughout the industry that don't require fancy computers and uh, lots of training and technical know-how and more for the, the average kind of construction user. So, so now what we do is we take a dollar in, we take 10 cents of that, we invest that 10 cents into automation. So that back to that first discussion about building tools to make ourselves better. And 90 cents goes into what we call R&D. So R&D for us is our, uh, our own SaaS application. So cmbuilder.io and cmexe.io. We have three large teams working on this. And we've been doing that now for a couple of years. It's been a very interesting and challenging journey, but uh, but now we're at a point where we're just starting to get to revenue and things are starting to pick up, and and we're able to use those products in our services. So it helps. Us. We're we're the you know power users of our own product. We can make the product better, and uh, and and it brings just continuous innovation and 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 allows us to solve more of our customers' problems, right? Because not everything we can solve in service form, you know, they just for whatever reason, but uh, we're building SaaS applications that for target customers, like it's a no brainer, they can use it and it's, it's got a lot of value. Yeah. F- fantastic. Abby, thank you so much for that generous answer as well. I think it's, um, it's very impressive and, and I would encourage our listeners to go and have a look at your website and, and look at the various uh, media that you've got there that explain the system and the different components. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, I want to move to wrap up a little now. Um, and with some of our recent guests on the on the podcast, uh, Dr. Andrea Shigou from MIT and Eric Bakchuk from Google, we discussed the outlook of the industry and a, a kind of potential role that scale uh, and or big tech companies might play in it. So I've got two questions for you here. Uh, the first question I've got is, what role do you think it's likely that big tech might play in a future building industry and and if, if so, then, or, or if any, uh, what? So I think it's unbelievable in 2021 that this, the predominant amount of software used in AEC industry, the vast majority, um, is locally installed on-premise applications with you know, plugins required by third parties that have been made. They release once a quarter, maybe once a year. <laughs> and there's some cloud stuff, but it's cloud vault. So you just, it's still a file system architecture that runs on someone's hard drive on their machine, but they push it through. So things are changing a little bit, but the big tech influence, I'll talk about Tesla. So how can Tesla basically upgrade your car overnight while you're sleeping through over the air updates? Yet in, in the, in the construction industry, (laughs) you gotta, you gotta, you know, you think about the software and the way it's used by users right now. uh, It's quite antiquated and, 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 you know, part of it is just like the development cycles of new technology. But when you look at it, like I'm, I think the biggest, like we look at what we're trying to do and we're lucky just timing wise, but I think, um, you know, we're hundred percent web-based. Everything's connected to the internet, just like that car that gets the over there, the air update. It's the physical world connecting to the digital world through the internet, basically. Um, and, and for our customers with CM Builder and CMEXE, mostly CM Builder for sure. You know, you go to bed one night and you wake up the next day, the product's better, right? You didn't have to download any app. You didn't have to go into some store. You didn't have to like talk to your IT person. 
You didn't have to load on that expensive machine. You just run it on your anything that has a browser runs the technology um, and in all the parametric modeling, authoring, editing is happening directly in the browser browser with our engine, which is the big innovation on our side. And so, and and it's like we might we you know my partner Nick says be careful not to say this because some people will think we're reckless or we don't do proper QAQC. But you know, of course, when you're going fast, we you know there's a balance between those two things. But you know, we've had weeks where we pushed we pushed new deployments three times in a week. And like when you think about that, um, and there, there was almost no impact to the user, right? You just woke up, you logged in the next day, and the, you refresh your browser, and boom, you got whatever, 25 more parametric resources, and your, your map loads faster, and the optimization of, of the product's faster. And you didn't, you know, you didn't pay anymore. You, you just paid your subscription, and the product gets better. And that's, so you want to talk about big tech, and I'll talk about Tesla. That's what I was most inspired by just being fortunate to be in that ecosystem. We were a big part of the Model 3 team. And just being in that ecosystem and around the way they look at product and the way they look at the product, it's building a system architecture. Think of the platform of the Model 3 as just a, a system architecture that will constantly be upgraded, right? So it's like, how, what level of hardware did they need from a camera perspective, from a platform perspective that was future-proof just enough that they can sell you a car and, and you paid for that car and it just gets better and better. The product actually gets more valuable <laughs> over time. When you think about that, that's an amazing concept, right? And I'm sure there's other applications that I'm missing, but just being in that world of like, make the absolute best possible product, sell it to a customer at as affordable price as you can. And then if you can create a value proposition where that product just gets better and better and better, by being connected to the internet and being able to do continuous deployment and over-the-air updates, that's like an incredible thing, right? And that comes from Elon Musk and, and big tech in this, in, this, in this way. And we're trying to take that a little pieces of that and use that for the construction industry, right? So we had a project the other day, I used this in my key feature Friday on LinkedIn, where we had a customer on a, a Wednesday say they need to model uh, a raised train station, like raised platform for trains, we call it SkyTrain here. And, and we have a massing tool in the product, but it's not super great. And that was like on a Wednesday and on Thursday night, we pushed it to the product. They had their meeting on Friday and they were able to use the, a parametric resource built in 24 hours, exactly what they need and pushed into their environment in a day, right? And, and so that's, that's the kind of stuff like, I, I, like Tesla had recently had an update and it didn't go so well. And just like, you know, there's a couple of things that broke. And just like the next day you come out, they fixed it. <laughs> it's like, it's fast, right? It's fast. That's the key. There was no, hey, go to this store and get this plug in and connect, you know, connect to a hard wire. Make sure you have, you know, there's all these things that we do in construction technology that you realize, like, holy smokes, how do we, how do we even expect our customers to, to you know, go for this? Yet, yet they do. Um, and we're, we're trying to change that. We're trying to say, no, the entire, the world is mobile. The world is 100% web. You're authoring, you're editing, your parametric modeling. It needs to be in the browser only, and it needs to be fast and still be performative. It can't just be like, you know, well, now I'm in the browser. It's like not just a viewer. Everyone's got a viewer. You need to actually edit and create new content directly in the mobile application and the web application, and it needs to continuously get better, and you need to pay the same price every month. You're not paying for it every time you want to upgrade your technology. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting take, Javi. Thank you for that. Um, the 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 speed, the continuous improvement, the the almost uh, democratic access to these tools. 
I think that is a real, uh, an interesting learning uh, from the big tech. Thanks for that. The final one I'm going to put to you as a, as a kind of uh, multiple choice here. Um, and I'm particularly interested in, in your view on this. It's a question about scale. And, and I, I understand completely I'm, I'm asking this question of your tech firm, which is on the, the smaller end of the scale. But I, I'm interested to think about where innovation in the building industry is going to come from. And I see two uh, fairly large options here, or perhaps three options overall. The, the first is the sort of big centralized, heavily financed uh, ventures. We, we might say Katera, for example, or uh, small and medium, uh, somewhat niche players. And, and in those, I would include yourselves. And, and I suppose the third option there is really both. What do you think? Well, I mean, I'm probably biased and I'm going to have my opinion, but, uh, and I'm, I'm borrowing a little bit from a, from a, Silicon Valley, big name over here in, in North America called Chamath Palihapitiya, who said something similar. I, you know, he's, his statement is that the vast majority of true innovation is not happening at the big companies. Um, now, I've been in Microsoft offices. I've learned a few people. It's a pretty impressive company. <laughs> it's huge, but they just continue to ship great products and, and do a lot of amazing things. Right? This is an incredible company. And I know there's others. Um, but his argument, which I probably agree with, like true, true innovation is happening at startups and they're happening in, in or smaller businesses. And the world in the construction industry, in my opinion, will be changed by a, a smaller firm startup, maybe that actually doesn't have enough cash. So they feel like they have to, you know, continue less cash is better than more cash. And that never sells, meaning they're not just trying to build a point solution that works that's perfectly positioned so that someone just comes in and acquires them and then they either get it gets punted killed or it gets adopted into a wider bracket which drives the total stack costs up which drives more costs for the consumer ultimately ultimately the price to the end buyer tends to go up with these acquisitions because now you have certain licensing agreements and stack costs that you have to factor in and then the consumer ends up paying for it the user pays for it we're quite passionate to try to have lower costs. Um, technology should decrease pricing. Cloud should decrease pricing. Democratization of models in, in this type of stuff that you just described, we actually just came up with a meeting yesterday. One of our customers said that to us. You guys are completely democratizing site logistics, he said. Now everyone can do this, not just you know a few people that are good at tech. So I think it's going to come from a smaller, not well-funded, crazy type of company that's really innovating and never sells, meaning... Of course, maybe they'll sell some equity or they'll raise, but meaning they have a mentality, a mentality that I'm not just building this to have an exit, right? Or like, what's my exit strategy? You should, if you really love what you're doing and you are trying to change the world, you shouldn't be worried spending one minute on exit strategy. You should, if you love your business and you love the problem you're solving, don't spend time on this. Now, if some, you know, I get it, like at some point someone taps you on the shoulder and you make, you know, like, yeah, I'm not trying to be critical. But like the real innovation, I think, will come from the person or the people or the team or the company that truly innovates, has less money than more. So they have to continue, continuously be scrappy and has a mentality of never selling, just like or, or just try to go public or some other way where they maintain, maintain control. But not just being, you know, taken out by, by the big two or three players that are dominating the industry. I think that's where the big in, innovation is going to happen. And for the big companies, 
they'll try and they'll keep trying, but it's, I think it's a hard challenge to, to truly innovate when you have these monster companies um, that need to also, often public companies that need to hit numbers and, you know, they, they got to sell and, and they might spend a lot of their time selling near end of life products because there's a decent margin and that marginal cost per per sale starts to go closer and closer to zero on software over the years, right? So you can make a lot of your your total value margin at the end of a, of a product's life cycle. So what, which means that you stay selling products that really should be, have been brought off the market a long time ago and replaced by newer innovation, but that's how you make your money, right? For those big companies. So it, it's kind of a hard sell to tell them like, to, to not sell those products and, and innovate and put themselves out of business um, or, or make them or cannibalize themselves. So that's my very long-winded, discon, you know, maybe convoluted answer. It should come from a small company that doesn't have enough money, that's scrappy, and that has a mentality that they're going to constantly innovate and, and have a mentality that they'll never sell. Excellent. Uh, well, on that note, Haley, I, I would say that's a very good note to end. Um, and I'd like to thank you for your time today. And as always, for our listeners, uh, notes and references that we've spoken about today will be added online to the show notes. But for now... Thanks for listening. And thanks once again, Javier, for your time and your generosity. Thank you. This is really fun. It's great. Thank you so much.